Well, it's been a great weekend here at CLC, and uh, we are continuing our series, The Thread. Uh, would you repeat, look forward to Jesus? That's the thread of every book of Scripture, and this weekend is no exception. I'm having a really good day. Um, after first service, I had plenty of time, so I took a, a walk through the building, and I went down and hung out in the kids' area for a while. And uh, I, we'll get, we need a zoom in of this on the camera, all right? So I have been recently awarded best pastor ever, all right? So that's only moments old. I mean, I'm standing before I know it, a little girl came up and handed me this official presentation. So in case you're wondering, I guess it's me. So no. <laughs> we have a great kids ministry. If, uh, if you've got kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews that aren't involved, you're going to want them to be down there. It's just amazing all the great stuff that's happening there. So we've been talking uh, since April, preaching through the Bible to just help us all with uh, reminding ourselves of the story. Biblical illiteracy is going to be more of a problem, so we're trying to kind of push back against that. And we started with the creation. In the beginning, God. That's the presupposition of Scripture. God is eternal. And then the next word, God created, it's a supernatural book. It's a book that requires a leap of faith. And so God created mankind, placed him in the Garden of Eden. It was paradise. There was no sin in their lives. Man was in perfect harmony with himself, harmony with God, with others, and with his environment. Sin entered, and basically sin is doing what you want, not what God wants. And it's called the fall of mankind. It has caused death, pain, regret, destruction ever since. And uh, generations later, the world was so filled with evil, and the Bible says the world was filled with violence. God regretted having made mankind, so he flooded the world uh, and spared the family of Noah. After that, in Genesis chapter 12, God, we meet a man named Abram. His wife's name is Sarai. And God chooses him to be the, the new people and nation of his. Uh, Abraham and Sarah will become the founding fathers, if you will, of the nation of Israel. And uh, Abraham had a son, Isaac. He had a son, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. It became the 12 heads of the tribes of Israel. And then Joseph was one of those sons. The people, God called Abraham, he left his father's territory, went to the promised land, he made a promise to him, he'd become a great nation, he would own the land as far as he could see, and that through his descendants the world would be blessed, and that promise was kept through Christ. And then the Israelites, uh, people of Abraham, they went to Egypt during a famine, ended up staying there for four centuries as slaves. God raised up a man named Moses who led them from slavery back to the promised land. Joshua then led the people into the promised land to conquer them, and then they settled the land according to the 12 tribes, like 12 states, uh, and that's the book of Judges. God's intention was to be their king, a theocracy, and he would rule the land, and there would be judges who would interpret the law. That was his plan, 12 states, judges ruling that. But the people said, no, we want to be like everybody else. We want a king. So God says, okay, I'll give you a king. So God gave them three kings. There was King Saul. He was a miserable failure, a short term out, and followed by David, a man after God's heart, followed by David's son, Solomon. And that was the golden age of Israel. They were united as 12 tribes. But then the nation fell uh, because of immorality. Solomon's son made foolish decisions. They split almost a civil war. And so 11 tribes went north to the nation of Israel. The southern tribe of Judah was its own nation. But the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. 
And so the northern kingdom fell very quickly to the Assyrian Empire because all the kings were evil, led the people in immorality and, idol and idolatry. The southern kingdom of Judah lasted longer, about 140 years longer, uh, as there were some righteous kings in that, but they were finally deported to Babylon. During the, the reign of all those kings and during the season of deportation for several years, there were prophets that went and spoke to the people and their message was shape up or ship out. Uh, they didn't shape up, and so they were shipped out into exile. And then there was a return. We talked about that last week where, where the remnant rebuilt the temple and the walls. Malachi was the last prophet. Uh, and then there's four centuries of silence. There is no word of God from Malachi to the book of Matthew. And then there are two, another category of books we're going to look at today are poetical books. There are po some of the greatest poetries in the Bible and wisdom literature. Now, having said all that, I just kind of summarized for you the Old Testament, thousands of years of history, and you have had the week off for weeks, and so this week we're going to do hand motions and remember all of this. So if you'd stand, please, if you're able, let's stand up, and let's do hand motions, and if your neighbor doesn't do them, make a scene, and we will embarrass them, all right? How's that? That's a good thing to do in church, all right? So here we go, like this. You ready? Creation gets flooded. The chosen, you're supposed to repeat after me. The chosen people make their way to the promised land. So that's going to Egypt and back, right? Okay. And then conquer and settle. That's Joshua and Judges, okay? And then they want a king. We three kings. That's Saul, David, and Solomon, okay? And then you have divided, we fall. Okay, north and south. And then you have the prophets shape up or ship out. This week we're going to insert uh, poetry and wisdom. And then shh, four centuries of silence. Give yourself a hand. That was really good. All right. Have a seat. You probably told yourself if we don't do it good and make us do it again, so you might as well do it with a passion. So well done. All right. And uh, so this weekend we're looking at poetical books. And we're going to start, if you have the CLC app, uh, all the, the notes are there. And there are numerous chapters that we're not going to touch that are listed there. You'll probably want that for just your own personal Bible study. So make sure you check out the app. And there's a few verses we'll read, not on the screen. But I want to talk, first of all, about the love song of songs. That is the book of the Song of Solomon. And uh, a love song is appropriate. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 6, verse 3, is sort of the theme of that book. It says very simply, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. Uh, it's a beautiful statement. It is a book declaring the love between a husband and a wife. And uh, that phrase has stood the test of time. I was in Israel a few years ago and brought Joyce a souvenir necklace that says that in Hebrew, my, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. And when you think about love songs, they're timeless. Uh, they are popular to this day. Uh, we're an intergenerational church, so all you baby boomers will remember Joe Cocker singing, you are so beautiful, right? To me, right? You are, come on, so beautiful to me. Can't you see? Let's go for it. You're everything I hope for. Put a little gravel in your voice, right? You're everything I need. Come on. You are so beautiful. Yeah, Billy Preston actually wrote that song. Uh, and that's the whole song. So if you know that, you know the lyric. And some of you are like, I can't believe we're singing that in church. 
Well, then you had, fast forward, if you're a, a little younger, you know, you had uh, Lionel Richie and Diana Ross doing Endless Love. And then Mariah Carey redid that with Luther Vandross. We're not going to try to sing that one. And then let's get real current. You got John Legend singing, All of me loves all of you, all your curves and all your edges, all your perfect imperfections. And some of you are like, I can't believe he said curves and edges in church. <laughs> well, if you can't believe that, that's because you have not read the Bible. Strap yourself in. I'm going to read from Song of Solomon, all right? That's a husband and wife hot after one another, all right? I mean, first of all, in chapter 5, she's talking about, honey, your head is like pure gold. Your hair is, the dark hair is like date clusters. Your eyes are like doves. Your cheeks are like a bed of balsam. Your lips are like lilies. Your abdomen is curved ivory. That guy had a six-pack, right? Not a keg, a six-pack. Your legs are alabaster pillars. Your mouth is full of sweetness. And last night in the debrief, I was kind of talking about the balsam and all that kind of stuff. And Curtis, our, our guy who runs the, the online, said, you know, remember that it's multisensory. So the Song of Solomon appears to sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell. I mean, it's all there. It's a sensory. And you get to Solomon. All right, now, we men are a little more visually oriented yet. And you can tell by what Solomon writes because he says, babe, I inserted babe myself, um, <laughs> the curves of your hips are like jewels. Your navel is like a round goblet. Your belly is like a heap of wheat. Your two breasts are like twin fawns of a gazelle. He can't decide if her breasts remind him of gazelles or date clusters or clusters of grapes because he does both in there. But anyways, and you can't believe I just said that. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Your nose, the tower of Lebanon. Your mouth is like the best wine. I mean, this is a passionate love between a husband and a wife. And if all the husbands and wives want to honor God today, you know what to do, all right? It's a love song. I mean, God created married love between a man and a woman back in the Garden of Eden. We talked about creation, and it's affirmed in the Old Testament, and Jesus affirms it in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19. And so that love is meant to be alive and well. The love between a husband and a wife is also uh, analogous to the love between God and his chosen people. In the book of Hosea chapter 2, God says, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. I will, I will have a covenant marriage-like relationship with you that goes soul deep forever. It's a relationship of righteousness and justice, loving kindness, compassion, and faithfulness. And we talked about how every book says look forward to Jesus. Well, the Song of Solomon and the whole marriage celebration looks forward to Jesus because you have a marriage celebration, the marriage feast, a wedding reception. We're having one of those at the end of, of uh, the book of, of Revelation. After the, after the rapture of the church, Revelation 19, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Who's that? John the Baptist, the first thing he says when he sees Jesus is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is the Lamb of God. His marriage is to the bride. The bride of Christ is the church. It's that relationship. It was given to adorn, to, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper, the wedding reception of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. 
I believe that's what Jesus is talking about at the Last Supper when he says to them, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord my death until I come. And he says, I'll not drink it new with you until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I believe we will raise our glasses at the marriage supper of the Lamb and toast Jesus Christ who made it all possible. So this book says look forward to Jesus. So let's now talk about the sacred songs, which is another word for psalms. It's usually right about in the middle of your Bible. And if you have a Bible or Bible device, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to, to Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 because there's an important thing to learn uh, about this. Most of the Psalms are written by David, a man after God's own heart. So we get a glimpse, a personal, intimate glimpse at David's relationship with God. And there's something very important to learn from the Psalms. Psalm 9, verse 1 David says, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to the name, your name, O Most High. I mean, he is like, yes, go God, all right? It's like, uh, like an amazing uh, expression of worship. And then you go to the very next chapter. Why do you stand far off, O Lord? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? God, where are you? If that isn't two extremes, I don't know what is. Yay, God, you're amazing. Oh, God, where are you? You ever had roller coaster times like that? You know, you go from one day to the next and you feel like you were so close to God and the next day the bottom drops out or the next week or whatever. What we learn from the book of Psalms is that David shows us that if we have a, an intimate relationship with God, you cannot have that without being honest to him. And so being honest with God is an important part of your prayer life. And so bring that to him. Don't, he's not interested in just, you know, things you memorize or just kind of say the same old, same old over and over again. He really wants to have that connection with us. And so with that said, let's jump in. And there are several kinds of psalms. We're going to kind of give you a little bit of an education more than just open the book and read it. Uh, we're going to look at a half a dozen different kinds of psalms, how they're grouped together. And again, they're listed in the app. You can read those later this week. The first we'll look at are theological psalms. The word theology just means a word about God. And so what do we learn about God in these pieces of poetry? A beautiful psalm is Psalm 139. And in Psalm 139, uh, in verse 1, it says, O Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. First thing we know is that God is a personal God. He knows you better than you know yourself, cares about you deeply. When you think about in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he is not some deity that spoke creation into existence and kind of spun it off into the cosmos and now he's done. No, we, we looked and even at creation that God is actively involved in our lives and in creation and he knows you personally better than you know yourself. He's a personal God. When it says, uh, verse 4, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Verse 4 speaks to uh, the fact that God is omniscient. And theologians like to put big words together. God is omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. And omni basically means all. So he's all-knowing. He's all-present. He's all-powerful. And that phrase, even before I say it, you know what's on my tongue, there's that sense of that's how well you know me. And do you, do you have a friend or maybe your spouse or a coworker or whatever, a family member, a sibling, and you can almost finish these other sentences? 
You know what they're thinking oftentimes before they say it. And I think once you get married long enough, once you get old enough, like Joyce and I are now doing that, you get like three-fourths of the way through a sentence and you stop and, go, and we'll kind of give each other the word for it to kind of fill it in, right? It's knowing each other that well. God knows you that well. And then you go to verse 7. And verse 7 says, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? He's ever-present. And yet... Most of us have probably had those experiences like the psalmist did in Psalm 10. God, where are you? I don't feel you. And this is where we learn that we cannot follow God just based on emotion and feeling. Have you ever been at a time in life, at a season in life, and you didn't feel God's presence? I have. Have you? We don't go by emotion and feeling, though. Our feelings are a great accompaniment to our relationship with God. But we don't judge God or determine God by just how I feel in the moment. Because when I feel like this, then it's wonderful. And when I feel like this, then it's, it's horrible. And so we want to we kind of understand that God is ever-present. He is ever-knowing. And then let's look at theocratic psalms. Theocratic, theocracy, is the rulership of God. God is king. He's the Lord of the universe. And uh, we see that in Psalm 121. Verse 1, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord. Would you say that? Tell your neighbor that. My help comes from the Lord. My help comes from the Lord. When we take time not to just get through Scripture, but to, I'd rather Scripture get through you than you get through it. And if it takes just sitting and reflecting on a verse, a chapter, a sentence. Man, when I realize my help comes from the Lord, I believe that people who believe in God should be the most unshakable people that there are. Who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip, and he who keeps you will not slumber. God is in charge. He can be trusted. And there are other, several other theocratic psalms that talk about God's lordship. Imprecatory psalms. How many of you have people in your past that you wouldn't have minded if bad things happened to them? Come on. All you super spiritual, oh, I never want that to anybody. No. I mean, sometimes people do stuff, you just want, right? You, you kind of want to go get them, God, right? Well, in precatory psalms, if I could paraphrase, it is a go get them, God kind of psalm. It is wishing at them, God. And uh, I'll, I picked a fairly mild one. There are, there are some pretty dramatic examples of imprecatory psalms. Uh, but on Psalm 83, it says, Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind. That's, uh, I wish I'd have thought before the rain hit, get a handful of dust and just go, because he's saying, do that to them. Just, oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like the fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with your tempest. Terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Man, no love lost there. Let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Kind of sanitizes the end there. Other imprecatory psalms are even more harsh. 
I mean, in one, he says, bust out their teeth. Another one, he uses uh, a circular verbiage, and he says, let their children be fatherless. Let their wife be a widow. I mean, he is laying it out there. Stop acting like you're that spiritual. You never feel bad about somebody, all right? <laughs> now, he doesn't act on it. He doesn't say, let their children be fatherless, and I'll take care of it for you. No, he leaves it in God's hands. And Paul reminds us and quotes Old Testament scripture that, that we should not take our own revenge but leave room for the wrath of God. And so certainly some of these people that David is wishing God's vengeance on, God's going to take vengeance on them. Some he won't. It's up to God. But there is nothing wrong. In fact, it's pretty biblical if you kind of vent your anger and frustration at and about someone in prayer. But then you end that with, okay, God, but then it's in your hands. I'm not going to act on it, but I need to get that off my chest. Because when you got something going, how many of you have somebody in your life, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can tell when something's bugging them, right? Well, guess what? People can tell when something's bugging you. And God, who knows what you want to say even before you say it, he already knows what's bugging you. And what he wants is let's have an intimate relationship so that you're transparent with me and you're honest with me and you're not trying to sanitize it and cover it up, but you'll go ahead and bring it to me. Even in precatory psalms. Another is a Hallel psalm, and it sounds like the word hallelujah, and, and yes, it's a, a psalm of praise. And Psalm 150 uh, sounds like instructions for a worship service. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Right there, that's the real contrast. Praise God in here. You sounded great a little while ago. Team did a great job. Most of our worship team and musicians this weekend are like under 21. They did a great job, I thought. So... Um, but praise him in his sanctuary, but also praise him in his mighty expanse. When you walk out of here, the worship is not done. You know, I'm a big proponent of just seeing all God's created and have those good job God moments. Even thunderstorms are kind of cool when you think of the power and the majesty of God. When you see a sunset, a sunrise, when you just sit and enjoy the, 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 the green of, of summertime and the blue skies, praise God in his mighty expanse. And... Um, I might take that a little too far sometimes, but I love riding the bike paths, and I may be, I have done actually, uh, been really into just worshiping while I'm riding a bike, and when it's a really pretty stretch of bike path and nobody's around, I may actually raise my hands and worship God while I'm riding a bike. But praise Him in His expanse, wherever you are. Learn to, learn to worship God. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing, with stringed instruments and pipe. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let, read this verse out loud with me. Let everything... Do it. One of the greatest antidotes to your depression is that. One of the greatest antidotes to your frustration or your disappointment is that. One of the greatest antidotes to just being tired and worn out is that. One of your greatest antidotes and, and remedies for where is God is praise the Lord. And there are times you do it simply in faith. You don't feel it. There's no evidence to do it. But because of who God is, I'm going to praise the Lord. And you'd be surprised because the Bible says that God dwells in, God inhabits the praises of his people. And when you do that, there's a connection that you're not going to find some other way. Hallel Psalms. Messianic Psalms 
are psalms about Christ as the Messiah. Look forward to Jesus. And the one I want to spend just a little bit of time on is Psalm 22, although there are many in Scripture. Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who else said that? Jesus on the cross. So he is quoting back a thousand years to this psalm that David prophetically penned, the words of Christ on the cross. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Let's skip to verse 14, that same psalm. Listen to this prophetic description. It's saying look forward to Jesus because this is what Jesus experienced on the cross. This is trying to express how he felt and what happened to him. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. Why does he reference that twice? Because the Bible says prophetically that not a bone of Christ will be broken during his crucifixion, which was unusual for crucifixion, which sets Christ apart. And indeed, when he was crucified, they did not break a bone in his body. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and form my clothing. They cast lots. Written 1,000 B.C. When did it happen? At the crucifixion of Christ. Look forward to Jesus. And then finally, for lack of a better title, it's just called Experience of God Psalms. And there are many listed. But I'd like to go ahead and, and, and land on the, the most popular, well-known psalm, and that's the 23rd Psalm. So if you have a Bible or Bible device, you might want to turn there with me. And I will issue a disclaimer. I'm not an agricultural kind of guy. I don't know animal husbandry very much. Um, I, I, don't, I know farm animals this much that at least once or twice a year my wife and I will probably go to a local county fair uh, and we will eat a funnel cake and split a sausage sandwich and maybe something else and then we will pet animals. That's what we do. Uh, we scratch a sheep's head, you pat a goat, you know, all that kind of stuff just because we're city slickers. And so I don't know a lot, and so you shepherd types and cattle ranchers might correct me on this, but from what I understand... This, this analogy here, Jesus references. In fact, Jesus said, that guy, Psalm 23, is me. In the Gospel of John, I am the good shepherd. And so what I have learned in reading about shepherds and sheep is there's a unique connection between shepherds and sheep. Uh, and sheep become so fond of the shepherd that they know their voice, so they follow them. And uh, again, no experience with sheep. Closest I got is our dog, Lulu. And we had all the... Section leaders over Friday night, about 65 people in our backyard, and she would go greet everybody, but then she'd hear me rejoice, and she'd come right back, and there she was. So that's as close as I get to a shepherd and a sheep, but anyway. Uh, and, and sheep, uh, a friend of mine who farmed hogs for a living said, you're right, and sheep, sheep are dumb. Uh, and he said, they'll also die for no reason. Well, that's kind of odd, but I never heard that before. Uh, but they, sheep need to be directed to where they're going to eat, you need to be directed to where it's safe to go. They need protection. And so with that perspective, we're the sheep. He's the shepherd. So Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is meant to be a soul-deep sense of contentment when you follow God. Following Christ, the good shepherd. 
It's not because he gives you all kinds of stuff. No, because stuff is here, here today, gone tomorrow. If we could look at an inventory of all the stuff we've had in our life, it'd be a mountain of it, and it doesn't make you content and keep you that way. No, contentment I shall not want. That comes from the inside out, a personal relationship with our good shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And would you just take a nice, big, relaxing, deep breath? For some of you, it's the first time you did it all week. Just, ah. That sense physically is a sense of restoration and well-being that God wants you to have. And that makes me lie down in green pastures and leads you beside quiet waters. Um, let's get literal about that. I'm not sure it was intended by the psalmist, but when God created mankind. I had a conversation with somebody this week, and they wanted to know, was the, is the Sabbath something that we still do now because it's not on the same day and all that sort of thing? So we talked about it. And, and indeed, the Sabbath was traditionally practiced on Saturday from uh, sundown to sundown. And uh, there was to be no work done, only a day of worship and rest. And then when the New Testament came, uh, the Christians that were Jews eventually got kicked out of the synagogue meeting on Saturday. So they met on the first day of the week, which was called the Lord's Day. So we call Sunday the Lord's Day. It's the day he resurrected. Uh, and so they moved that day. But I told the person in the conversation, the principle of the Sabbath is still accurate. And that is when God created, in the beginning, God created on six days he worked, on the seventh day he rested, and he is modeling for us there should be a rhythm to your life because you are not greater than the creator. You are not made for 24-7. Turn to your neighbor and tell them that includes you. Tell them. You're not made for 24-7. And if you go high RPMs in life 24-7, I assure you, sooner or later, psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors will all affirm to you, you will eventually pay the price and break down. There is meant to be a rhythm of work and productivity, recreation, and rest in your life. And uh, if you think you're the one create exception to that, trust me, God can make you lie down in a pasture or wherever. I remember years ago, I thought I was the exception. And remember Epstein Barr? It was a big popular virus back in the day. Man, I got nailed with that for about six weeks. And I, this verse came to my mind. He will make you lie down if he has to. So... Pace yourself. He restores my soul. Again, that's your mind, that's your will, that's your emotions. When you take another nice, big, deep, relaxing breath. That's how I'm supposed to feel on the inside of me. Soul includes your thought life. How's that going? Some of you just can't shut it off. It's just... Stressful, stressful, stressful. No, he wants to restore that. It, your soul includes your emotions, your heart, anxiety, fear, insecurity. Your soul is your mind, your, your, your emotions, and your will. Because out of our thoughts and our feelings, we make a lot of choices. And the more messed up or, or, or anxious and stressed out we are here and here, the more it's reflected in the choices that we make, the dysfunctional choices, they all go together. And he wants to restore your soul, one of the greatest works God does. Restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. How many of you have ever needed God to guide you? You needed help with a decision. We all do, right? He guides us 
I love that, that he guides me. And then it's sobering when the very next verse says, and oh, by the way, some of the places he guides you, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you're with me. Whoa, some of the path of righteousness he guides you in for his sake is going to be through valleys of what feel like the shadow of death. How many of you have ever been in scary, painful, regrettable places in your past? Let me see our hands. Lots of times that's God taking us there. And if we go by our feelings, when we're in that deep, dark valley, we're like, God, where are you? And what he wants to whisper to your soul is, I'm right here. Trust me. And I'm going to lead you through this. And some of you that are in a dark valley of death now, you feel like that. He wants to lead you through that i got to break it to you, though. It's not so you are happily ever after. He wants to lead you through that for his name's sake. So that you get through that valley and you go, you know what, good job, God. I've learned that going through those valleys is dark and scary, but when I get through them and on the mountaintop looking back, they make gorgeous scenery, and I give God glory for it. So trust him if you're in that. I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I had to do a little research there. There's a staff, you know, a shepherd's staff, that long uh, wooden stick, and it's got a crook on the end. They use that to guide the sheep, to, to reassure the sheep, to pull them away where they're supposed to be. So that's that whole guiding process. And so sometimes God jerks your life in a certain direction or pushes a different way. That's him doing that. And then the rod is like a club, so the, the rod is a protective thing. and He'll, he'll protect you. He'll watch over you. He'll guide you. And then talk about relational anxiety. We all go through that. We all got our difficult people, difficult relationships. Sometimes people mean you harm. Uh, They're out to get you, whatever the case might be. When I feel the intensity of relational trouble, I think about this verse. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What an oxymoron is that? I mean, picture the people that are the most difficult people in your life that would love to see you just splat. Picture them and picture all the stress that that normally creates for you and you get all about them and and Jesus, the good shepherd, says, tell you what, let's just have dinner right here. And so, you know, these busboys, men, whatever, they come out and they put, a, they put a table, they put a linen tablecloth on it, they bring out fine china, they put more silverware than you know what to do with around the plate. And he says, now sit here. Yeah, but no, sit here. That disjointedness is what he wants you to realize. I can give you incredible peace and ah, even amidst all the relational trouble and strife. You don't have to be an emotional reaction and mess in response to them. No, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my... You give me a sense of well-being even when they mean me harm. And, and you've anointed my head with oil. Shepherds do that for the, the well-being of the sheep and for their health and to keep insects off them and whatnot. And my cup overflows. Surely. I love this verse. I, I read this psalm and this verse at almost every funeral gravesite I do. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. It gets better than that. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And yeah, I, I tell you, the more 
the more messed up and troubled this world gets, the more it feels like evil has a holiday, I remind myself that, you know what, there is coming a, a season and a time and an eternity that I'll, I'll be done with here, and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No more crying, no more pain. And the end of that psalm likewise says, well, look forward to Jesus because he's the one who's that good shepherd who's going to pull it all together.